Millions of parents know the joy of sacrificing for their kids' activities. The joy of sacrificing for their kids' activities. Many of you here even offer up your Saturdays to drive and cheer, to drive to and cheer at, whether it be basketball tournaments, soccer tournaments, chess tournaments. Maybe there's less cheering at those. Some parents sacrifice for the children so that, that, so that they can buy an expensive instrument. I don't think there's any hockey moms here. They have to sacrifice sleep so that they can get up early on those cold mornings to get their kids to hockey practice. For some, you know, place where it's cold. For some, that sacrifice is going to mean tough choices in the future. Is our family going to do summer leagues or take summer vacations? How many practices a week is too many? Does my student have a realistic chance of getting a scholarship, maybe of winning gold? Now, perhaps some of these sacrifices of sleep and time and money are given begrudgingly, out of duty. But I imagine that the majority spend themselves out of joy, right? They love seeing their kids excel, of them achieving their goals, of disciplining themselves, of being all that they can be, being the best at something. But for some, I think there's probably an anticipated joy, a future joy, as they begin to dream with their children, maybe of winning Olympic gold, of having their child's name engraved on the Stanley Cup. You can see a hockey theme here. Of being a concert master in a major symphony. None of us are strangers at expending ourselves for joy. Some of us might travel far for the best pizza that they can find. Our current favorite is in Newport Beach. I mapped it. And it's 15 miles. That's maybe too far to go for pizza. Others of us will sacrifice for the joy of watching the end of a game, even if it's over too late, or finishing a novel. Now, what might be more unique than simply sacrificing for joy, maybe slightly more unique than that, is the joyfully being spent for the success of another. I mean, I think that we'd have to be pretty honest. It's pretty easy to spend ourselves for our own joy, Maybe a little bit less common to spend ourselves for the joy of another. Whether it's our, our, maybe our children's success in a classroom or a concert hall or on the field. The topic of being joyfully spent in the pursuit of another's success is one which Paul touches on in Philippians 2. You can go ahead, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Philippians 2. We'll be focusing on verses 16 to 18 this morning, where Paul both embodies and commands this connection between being spent and experiencing joy, between being spent and experiencing joy. And so this morning, we'll see that Paul wanted the Philippians to understand that true joy is in being spent for one another. True joy is in being spent for one another. We're going to see three aspects this morning of being spent for one another so that you'll rejoice in being spent for your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is really about your joy this morning. In fact, Paul, as we'll see, is going to command us to joy, to rejoice. And that joy is going to come from our sacrificing ourselves in service to one another. So let's go ahead and read together from Philippians 2, verses 14 to 18. Have your Bibles open, I'll read it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And Paul gives some of the results that come from that. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, 
children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you uh, for preserving your word for us. And we know that when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, he was inspired that this word is word that is breathed out by you through your messengers. And you preserved it for us, Lord. And so even though this can kind of be read quickly as an aside about how um, he feels uh, about the Philippians and their sacrifice, Lord, uh, we want to be taught. Father, I thank you so much for those encouraging songs that we sung this morning that reminded us that we are only right in your son, that we need his blood to cover us, that we hide ourselves in his righteousness that he will never reject us, that you will never reject us because of your son's sacrifice. And I think that that is timely in your grace this morning as we do look at a message that's talking about our sacrifice and our being spent. And so, Father, we want to do this in a way that is dependent, the overflow of the gospel in our lives, of that good news transforming us, Lord. So please, Father, give us hearts that are teachable. I pray, Father, if we need to be encouraged, we'd be encouraged, exhorted, exhorted, Admonish, admonish, Lord, that your word would be effective. In Jesus' name, amen. When a servant of the Philippian church named named Epaphroditus, named Epaphroditus, I'm going to have to work on saying Epaphroditus before we get a couple weeks from now. I'm going to say it a lot. Named Epaphroditus brought Paul money from the Philippian church to Paul, who was in prison. He also brought a report of how the Philippian church was doing. Now, if this is your first time with us, you might be surprised. Wow, Paul is God's messenger, and he's in prison. He's not in prison for something he's done that was wrong, but for proclaiming Christ. That report that Epaphroditus brought about the Philippian church was concerning to Paul. Now, this is a a, a letter that's overflowing with joy, really. And Paul has such warm expressions and so so much affection for the Philippian church. But there were concerns in the church. Paul was concerned about the lack of humility that was beginning to show, the lack of unity there, and the lack of joy. Now, Paul had begun this church about 10 years previously when he first preached the gospel there. Now, unlike some churches, the church in Philippi always had a great relationship with the Apostle Paul. They faithfully supported him. And as you read through uh, the letter of Philippians, which I encourage you to, we'll we'll be be in it in the next coming weeks, read through it once or twice a week. Just sit down and read through it. And it's good to keep reminding yourselves of some of what Paul's already said. As you read through it, you'll see the extent of Paul's affection for the Philippian church. Paul loved this church, and this church loved Paul. This church had begun under difficult times. It wasn't long after Paul and Silas had been preaching the gospel in Philippi that they found themselves in prison, that they were beaten with rods. The church began as a persecuted church. 
And I don't know if they had a break for a while or if they had continued nonstop, but that church was currently experiencing opposition from without for their allegiance to Christ. But there was also problems in, inside the church, and the church was beginning to, to show some, some fissures, some, some cracks from the, the pride and selfishness. So having heard about these recent challenges that the Philippian church was experiencing, Paul appeals to the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 27. He appeals to them to have the humility of Christ. We see in chapter 2, verse 5. He appeals to them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. We saw in verse 13 of chapter 2. To do all things without grumbling or disputing. He wants them to be humble and thankful and overflowing in, in love for one another. Now, as Paul kind of appeals to the church, he also paints a picture for them. He, he, he paints a picture of how their obedience is going to affect his heart. He motivates them through his personal feelings. And we saw that in chapter 127. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. He says, I want to hear how you are doing. I want to hear that things are going well for you. In chapter 2, 2, he says, make my joy complete. You can't make me any happier than through your obedience. Make my joy complete. In verse 2, 16, gives his most recent personal, personal motivation to them. That in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. And Paul's motivating there, them there to do everything without grumbling or disputing because the effect it was going to have on their character. So that in the day of Christ, when he stands before Christ, it'll be clear that he didn't run in vain or toil in vain. Now Paul, as he thinks about the day of Christ, when he stands before Christ, of Christ's return, he thinks about what he's going to have to show for his labors. And as he thinks about that, he naturally turns to thinking about his potential death as he awaits trial before Emperor Nero. So this morning, we're going to look at three aspects of being spent for one another so that you will rejoice in being spent for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to look at three aspects of being spent for one another so that you'll rejoice in being spent for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this brings us to our first aspect here that we're going to see is the extent of being spent. The extent of being spent. What does it mean to be spent? And how far are we to be spent? How far are we to be spent? Now, as the paragraph divisions in your Bible show, and if you have an ESV Bible, there's, there's nice clear paragraphs. In a New American Standard Bible, you may not know this, but the bold numbers are the beginning of a paragraph. You'll see that verse 16 doesn't begin a new paragraph. This is, and, and so I know that's a little strange to have a section here right in the middle of this paragraph. Verse 16, as we saw, was actually the continuance of Paul's last point. And, and, and it was a point in our previous sermon. But really, it was focusing there on how they're doing everything without grumbling or disputing. Uh, one of the results of that was going to be that Paul would be excited about being, be, being, being before Christ because of the effect it was going to have in their lives. He says in verse 16... That in the, day of, uh, uh, in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory. Or if you have an ESV Bible, it's to be proud. 
Paul wanted them to be motivated by his reason to glory, to be proud. And we'll talk about that pride here. And we, we, we mentioned last time, it's not, it's not haughtiness. The, he's really talking about confident joy. The confident joy that Paul could have at the return of Christ due to what Christ had accomplished through Paul in the lives of, of the Philippians. Paul wanted the Philippians to be evidence that he had faithfully fulfilled the ministry that Christ had entrusted to him. So you could imagine it like this. Imagine a father in the military has gone off to war. And he is returning. And as he's returning, his wife is excited, his kids are excited. But how do you think his wife wants to present their children to their husband who's coming back from war? How does, he, how does she want her kids to behave when their father comes back? I imagine she doesn't want them to be rebellious, disrespectful, ungrateful, Right? No, she wants, as her husband comes back from war, the children to be submissive and generous and, and kind. You can imagine two moms waiting for their husband to, to return from war very differently. One might have a confident joy, a reason to glory at her husband's return. Because she's done well in her parenting. She has faithfully parented the kids. And I know that this is complex and obviously... When a husband goes to war, it leaves a lot of challenges at, at, at home for the mom. But you can just imagine a simple version here of the mom can't wait for the husband to come back because the kids are just doing great and they're thriving and they're obeying. How different for another mom who's just really wasted her parenting time. And her kids are a zoo. When the husband comes back, like, well, what happened to these kids? That's what Paul's talking about here a little bit. He wants to be eager at the return of Christ to present the Philippians to Christ, blameless and innocent, as he talks about in the previous verse, children of God above reproach, in the midst of, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Now, when Paul says that there is his reason to glory or to be proud in that, He's, 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 not, he's not trusting in their lives as the evidence of his salvation. It's not the basis of his salvation here. His only confidence, and we're going to see this in chapter 3, was the fact that Jesus Christ took the punishment of his sins, that Jesus died in his place. That was his only reason for confidence when it came before God. But there's this expectancy here. There's a sense of like, I want the Philippians to, in a sense, to show them off, to show off what Christ is accomplishing in their, in their lives through my labors for them. It's not about boasting and like, wow, he's such a better apostle than Peter was. See what Peter has to show? It's not, it's not that kind of boasting, but, 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 but a reason for confidence, a reason for joy. It's the joy of a child who's ready for their parents to inspect their clean room because of how hard they've worked, right? They want their parents to be proud of them. So as Paul looks towards the day of Christ, the day when Christ rewards our obedience, Paul motivates the, the, the Philippians, we talked about this last time, by reminding them of how he had spent himself for them. He, re, he describes his ministry for them as running 
and toiling. He reminds them, I've worked so hard for you. I want to present you to Christ as mature and as beautiful and as changed. I've, I've ran for you. I've toiled for you. This running, it's not jogging. It's striving for the finish line. It's chest out sprinting. It's the kind of run, and you, you see this when you watch the Olympics, that leaves the runner flat out on the track, panting for breath. That's the kind of running, the kind of effort that Paul had put into his ministry for the Philippians. It was toil. It was sweat-inducing. It was back-breaking labor. Some of you have had to do some of that sweat-inducing, back-breaking physical labor, right? Where you're like, there's no way I can do this again. And you get up and you do it again. And you move that wheelbarrow of dirt or rocks and then you're like, okay, I'm done. And you go and do it again. And the whole time you're just like, I, I, I can't keep doing this. But you keep doing it because it's your job. That's the kind of effort that Paul's talking about. And he's concerned that that would be done for nothing. And that's really what we saw the danger was of not doing everything without grumbling or disputing. That, that, that all of that effort could have been for nothing if they don't grow. Now, if Paul ran like that and toiled like that, and the Philippians had failed to become blameless and innocent children of God of above reproach, he's not talking about their conversion, but about their character, it would be like, it'd be like that runner ripping through that finish line in first place, only to find that he had accidentally stepped outside of his line and been disqualified. Like, what did I do this for? I'm laying on the ground panting. And I don't even win. I was the first one through, but I was disqualified. Or like, and, and, and I heard about this on the news this, this past week with the uh, mudslides that have occurred after the uh, Thomas fire. A, a woman who had gone through all the work of getting sandbags and, and the toil of placing sandbags only to find a neighbor's car in her yard and her recycling bin in her neighbor's living room. Right? That toil had been done for nothing. The sandbags didn't do a thing. That's what toiling in vain would be like. That's what would running in vain would be like. And Paul doesn't want that. It wouldn't have been Paul's lack of effort. It would have been because the Philippians' failure to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul wants to be able to be proud of what God has accomplished through his running and laboring. He wants to show Christ. Look at what I've accomplished through you working through me. Look at the return of your investment, Jesus. Look at their becoming like you. Now, as Paul is thinking about the day of Christ, and he's thinking about presenting the Philippians to him, to Christ, as blameless and innocent, all this great work that has accomplished in their lives over these past ten years, I think that there's an emotional complexity in these verses. As Paul just doesn't think about the return of Christ, but he thinks about his, his current situation. See, since first seeing Christ on the road to Damascus, since, his, since he first put his hope in Christ's righteousness, Paul had spent himself 
spent himself, exhausted himself, poured out himself for the Philippians and for so many other churches. And now Paul is facing the possibility that he could quite possibly be at home with Christ soon. Because remember, this time, Paul is awaiting trial before the wicked Roman Empire Emperor Nero, the most powerful human in the world, who quite possibly could execute Paul. Nero was capricious. He hadn't yet started persecuting Christians the way that he one day would. And we've seen from this letter, and even we'll, we'll see in the next couple weeks, that Paul was hopeful, even confident, that he was going to be released. But there was also the possibility that he could be executed. Now, we know from, from, from Paul's ministry, and even from this letter, that Paul wasn't afraid of being executed. In Philippians 1, verses 21 to 23, Paul talks about this. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is even better. But if I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions. It's not like he's, he, he's making a choice. He's just saying, if I had to choose, I don't know which I would choose. It's better for me to stay with you. But to be with Christ, that is very much better. Like, you need me, and I'm going to stay here with you. But being with Christ is so much better. So it wasn't like Paul was afraid of being executed. But he is facing that. Now, as I said, it's emotionally complex. Paul's talking, and just and, and, and almost as you read through, it's just a natural flow of, of like, I don't want to have run or labored in vain. And then there's this, there's this unspoken here, right? You and I both know that this could be the end. I could die. I could be before Christ soon, Paul's saying to them. And so then he says, but even if, it's not, it's not possible, I mean, it's not likely, but it's possible. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. He may be in Christ's court soon. And he wants the Philippians to know how he feels about being spent for them. How he feels about his life spent running and toiling. See, his service for them was not done begrudgingly. He didn't resent the loss of his weekends and his weeknights. Because remember, Paul often worked as a tent maker, right? He, he, he did, he did his, his ministry in the overflow, he didn't feel bitter about how emotionally exhausting it was, although he does describe that in other letters, caring for all of these churches. So he, they, this wasn't done begrudgingly, it's done joyfully. So he wants to help the Philippians understand how he thought about the potential of his death. And he gives an illustration for them. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. And for all of us in the 21st century world, you're like, great, makes it perfectly clear, right? No. See, Paul uses a picture here, and, and, and really it would have worked for both the Gentile world and the Jewish world, uh, of a priest offering up an animal sacrifice. You know, you've got a big, giant metal grate in front of you. 
The animal has been brought up, it's been killed, laid on the altar, and it's being burnt. It's being completely consumed by fire. And over that offering, or maybe alongside, the priest pours out an additional offering of wine or or oil. You can imagine, immediately flames flare up, and the recently poured out liquid is gone. Just sizzles away. See, the drink offering, and that's what Paul's talking about, being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. The drink offering was an offering that came alongside the main offering. It was a complement to the main offering. Without the burnt offering, there would be no drink offering. You just didn't come up and just pour some oil onto the big metal altar. It was a complement to the main offering. See, Paul is content to be poured out as a drink offering, an offering which immediately sizzles into smoke as soon as it hits the grate, as long as it's a complement to their sacrifice. And Paul's description of himself being poured out, and we're talking about the extent of being spent here, he's held nothing back. He has run and he's toiled, and now he's ready to be completely spent even to death if it can complement and complete their sacrifice. So what makes Paul okay with expending everything, with having nothing left, of being spent to the point of death? And I think that really, realistically, if we all brainstorm together, we could come up with many answers. And there's two that Paul gives, gives here. That one, is, one is specifically stated and one is m- more implied. So we're going to look next. We talk about the extent of being spent. We're going to look now at the purpose of being spent. Why did Paul live in such a way that he ran and that he labored and he poured himself out as a compliment sacrifice? Not even the main show. See, in being spent, the purpose of being spent, Paul desired for his labor to be effective. Paul desired for his labor to be effective. To be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. The sacrifice and service of your faith is a stated purpose of Paul's being spent. Now, there's no so that here. It's poured out upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. This is what I want to be the addition to. The sacrifice and service of their faith was the main course. He just wanted to be the salt sprinkled on top. Now, remember the dread he had about coming before Christ empty-handed, with, without fruit to show for his ministry, without the sacrifice and service of their faith. Paul was just wine or oil spilled on a fire. He'd just be a puff of smoke without them. Now, some have argued that when, that when Paul says the sacrifice and service of your faith, that Paul is... is specifically referring to the Philippians sending help to Paul while he was in prison. They, they, they had sent him money, uh, and, and Epaphroditus had brought, the, had brought that money to him. They had also, I think, and we'll see this, had, had, had intended for Epaphroditus to stay and to help Paul, although that didn't work out as they planned. And some had said that that's that, that the, the, the sacrifice and service of your faith that Paul's talking about. You've been very generous with me. You've taken care of me. And it's possible, but I think it's strange to think about Paul's pouring out his last 
breath, the last bit of life as he's executed as being the complement to their kind of love offering for him, right? It's, it's, it seems bigger than just their taking care of him. I think, I think he's really talking about the whole of the Philippians' obedient life as a sacrifice. It's their whole transformed living. It's their character matching up with what Paul is describing here in chapter 2. See, a sacrifice, Paul is thinking about their lives being a sacrifice. A sacrifice was something that was costly. It was a big deal for most people to bring an animal to be sacrificed. It was something that was completely and willingly offered to God. Something that would be completely consumed by fire. And the sacrifice that Paul is talking about here, I believe, is the, is the Philippians' obedient lives. Now, that's not a strange notion for us. In our care groups this year, we're going in Romans 12. If you are interested about getting involved in a care group, please, please, please talk to me afterwards. In Romans 12, we've talked about Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, it says, Therefore, I urge you, this is Paul writing to the Romans, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And there's that, some of that same language where he, Paul had no problem of thinking of believers living in a way as a sacrifice. Now, it wasn't just, you know, it's not a dead animal sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that's living and holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, which is how you worship God. It's by being a sacrifice, by being completely committed to obedience to him. I think that some of that same background is behind this passage in, in Philippians 2. As he talks about their sacrifice, the sacrifice and service of their faith. See, the Philippians' sacrifice included costly choices made for the glory of Christ. It was a sacrifice of time and money and all kinds of freedoms that they could have enjoyed. No doubt in times of urgent need, it was a sacrifice of sleep and, and, and of rest. It was a sacrifice of people's respect of them as they proclaimed allegiance to Christ, as they told others about him. It was the sacrifice of what some of their families thought, thought of them as they didn't go back to their former sins, as they no longer participated in drunkenness or in gossip. But the Philippians' sacrifice was more than what they were saying no to. It was also active. And we see that here. It was sacrifice, but it was also service, a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. The, the terms here in the Greek, sacrifice and service, are taken together as one phrase, the sacrifice and, and, and service of your faith. It's, 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 it's controlled by one article. It's almost like you could say they're sacrificial service. The word service could be used in the Greek world of, of, of what a public servant did. So, 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 come in, so someone who served in, in government. But it could also be used of priests, whether in the, uh, uh, in, in, in the Septuagint, referring to the Old Testament priest, or it could refer to cultic priest of, of the lost world. But largely in the New Testament, it refers to serving to meet the need of another. That word was often used to meeting the needs of others. 
See, the Philippians are pictured here as both sacrifice and priest. And what they're offering is themselves in service of one another. It's really just kind of a whole picture here. Sacrifice, priest, offering themselves in service of one another. Now, Paul tells where the sacrifice comes from. It doesn't come from just duty because they have to. It says that this sacrifice and service comes from their faith. The sacrifice and service of your faith. See, believing in God's Son liberated the, the Philippians, just as it does all Christians, who truly get the goodness of God's grace to offer themselves for one another. When we understand the joy of the forgiveness of Christ, just as we sang about, the blessing of being reconciled to him, when we have confidence that God the Father loves us, that he gave his son for us, when we are convinced of God's goodness to us in Christ Jesus, when we expect that future reward of being before him, when we know for certain that we will forever be worshiping God in heaven, it liberates us to give our lives for one another, to be that sacrificial servants. See, faith does not lead to hoarding and hiding. Faith leads to our serving and being spent, to being outpoured. Knowing the love of Christ liberates us to be outpoured for his pleasure, to be offered up. Now, I believe that Paul has a gentle reminder for the Philippians in this verse here. See, Paul had been the recipient again and again of their sacrificial service. The, the Philippians' faith in the Lord Jesus had overflowed to Paul personally, and he had been blessed by it. But the church was struggling. And could the same be said about their relationships with one another inside the church? And if you read through chapter 2 again, you'll see from the nature of the commands in the section that the mostly healthy Philippian church was in danger of selfishness and empty conceit, of doing things out of selfish ambition, of failing to put others before themselves. What they had really excelled at, there's evidence in chapter 2 that they're starting to shrink back, and it's leading to pride and disunity. The church is beginning, in a sense, to fall apart. If these things continue. So he challenges them that after years of faith-fueled service, that they don't now after all of that, after the previous 10 years, don't reach back onto the altar and pull back the sacrifice that you've given. It's not yours anymore. It belongs to him, right? You, you, you've given yourselves totally to him. So keep trusting him. Keep operating in faith. Keep believing the good news. Don't try to take that life back for yourself. It belongs to him. And I think that that's just kind of an implied Warning there. Now, Paul is eager to compliment their sacrifice, to be poured out alongside their sacrificial service. But if they failed to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, if they failed to do everything without grumbling or disputing, Paul's being poured out would be like barbecue sauce basted on your grill with no meat, 
right? There's, there's, there's vanity to that. There's emptiness to that. He wants to be poured out upon their sacrificial service. Now, this, I think, is Paul's stated purpose of being spent. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, that's the reason why he's being poured out, to complement their sacrifice and service. There's also an implied purpose. There's also an implied purpose. It's one that's not stated, but it's really there for anyone who knows anything about sacrifices. See, the point of a sacrifice is whose pleasure? It's God's pleasure. A sacrifice is about pleasing God. In Genesis 8, 20 to 21, Noah gives a sacrifice after God rescues them from the worldwide flood. It says in Genesis 8, verses 20 to 21, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, and, 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 he, and the Lord says, I'm, I'm never going to curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. But there's that phrase there. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Now, some versions translate that as pleasing, but it does have this idea here of an appeasing, an, an appeasing aroma. He smells a sacrifice, and God does not destroy and that's what it was in Old Testament sacrifices. In Old Testament sacrifices, there's a sense that God's anger towards sin is soothed as he smells a sacrifice. And really, I think we ultimately know that he's looking forward to the future sacrifice of Christ. But God averts punishment, and he's pleased with his worshipers. He enjoys reconciliation with them. His anger is soothed. But now that Christ has offered himself for our sins. And Ephesians 5 talks about how Christ gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. God is pleased. God is satisfied. God does not need to be appeased. He doesn't need to be soothed. His punishment was exhausted on his sons, on his son. So now our sacrifice is not about soothing God, it's just about pleasing him. Our sacrifice is only about pleasing him. Our love for him and his pleasure with us. So this phrase, soothing smell or pleasing smell, is often used in scripture in the, in, in the context of sacrifice. And we see that in, even in Philippians 4, verse 18, where Paul's going to talk about the offering that the Philippians sent to take care of his physical needs. It says, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So there's that idea built in a sacrifice of it smells good. When our faith overflows into sacrifice and service, God is pleased. It smells good to him. He smiles. It's like walking in to your parents' house when your mom is making your, the favorite meal from your childhood. You walk in and you go... Smells good. I like that. I want some of that. When Paul talks about sacrifice, it's not emotionally detached. And it may be for us, right? I mean, just because sacrifice is not part often of our world. Barbecues, we get, and we get that smell. Sacrifices were about God's pleasure about God's joy in seeing what his son's sacrifice has accomplished in the lives of those he came to save. 
The Philippians' faith-fueled, sacrificial service brings a smile to God's face. Again, it's not about appeasing God. It's not about our being justified with God. That's only done by grace alone through faith alone in the work of Christ. But it is about God enjoying what he's done. So Paul is happy to be spent, to be poured out alongside, to be the drink offering. If his sacrifice leads to the spread of God's smile as that sizzle happens. See, Paul's being spent was purposeful. It was the purpose was the Philippians' whole life, their life of sacrificial service. It resulted in God's pleasure. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we are all spent, and we spend ourselves for many things, what are you spending yourself for? Is your life spent for God's glory in the lives of his people? Is your being spent a sweet-smelling sacrifice? Is your being spent a sweet-smelling sacrifice? If there is one thing true, 21st century America, is that everyone feels spent, right? Everyone feels spent. If you ask someone how they're doing, what will they say? Or how was your last week? Busy and I'm tired, right? There are so many opportunities to earn, to experience, to have pleasure that most of us, many of us at least, have surpassed our bandwidth. We run on fumes. It's like when your car radiator has stopped and there's all that white smoke going and you're like, I'm just burning this thing up but we're just going. I should stop soon. I believe that most of you are being spent. Your oil is being poured out on the fire. The smoke of your life is ascending. But what are you being spent for? Is it for the sacrifice and service of those around you? Will your being spent bring a lasting smile to your father's face? And I don't mean that to be guilt-inducing. That can be encouraging to you. You can say, yes, it is. That is reflective of what I'm being spent for. Praise the Lord. It can be encouraging. It can also be exhorting. You'd be like, yeah, I need to look at what I'm being spent for. It also could be admonishing. No, I'm, I'm, I'm wasting my life. I'm, I'm just pouring water on the fire. I'm trying to put out the flames with my sin. I want to be spent for the sacrificial service of the saints. I want all of you to be spent for the sacrificial service of the saints. See, don't wait till your life is over to ask if what you're sacrificing is worth it or what you're sacrificing for is worth it. Paul knew his sacrifice had purpose. He knew it was for the service of the saints. He knew it was about God's being pleased. And thus he was able to rejoice in it, right? It brought him joy. It made him happy. And that brings us to our third point. So we talked about the extent of being spent completely poured out. The result of that being spent, both the fruit in others' lives and God's pleasure. And here's the joy of being spent. The joy of being spent. See, Paul's response to being poured out to have held back nothing, to being the complement to other sacrifice, is joy. 
I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And I'll, I'll read the verse again. But even if, I don't think it's going to happen, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Now, in, uh, in the ESV, it says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. The, the, the New American Standard says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I think it's kind of even more simple. I rejoice and rejoice with you. Right? It's I rejoice and with rejoice. It's almost the same word twice. He's happy though, right? There's a lot of joy going on. I think joy is mentioned 14 times in the letter of Philippians. There's four of them right here in the context of dying, right? Of being completely spent. And I think that's instructive for us. If we want joy, it is not by hiding and hoarding, right? It's by being spent. So as Paul looks forward to his final offering, his final offering alongside their offering, his heart bursts. My goal is complete. Your faith is being productive. The Father is pleased by your lives, which is exactly what I've labored for. I rejoice in being the complement to your sacrifice. I rejoice in the pleasure the Father has in your obedience. I've got everything I want. This is, this is a great sacrifice. See, but Paul's joy is not only his own personal joy. He says he rejoices with you all. I rejoice and I rejoice with you. And perhaps there's a subtle reminder here to the church when he says you all. Because no one was omitted or excluded from this, even though the church was experiencing friction at this point. He rejoices with each believer of the Philippian church as, as them all. I rejoice with you all. Now, I believe that Paul rejoices with them. He says, I rejoice as I'm poured out, and I rejoice with you because the Philippians' lives can be characterized by sacrificial service just as Paul's life was. The Philippians know the joy of sacrificial service in being spent for others. So they're rejoicing, and he's rejoicing as he's poured out on top of their sacrifice. And as they are both spent in service, as they're all being spent in service for one another, as they're being serving their brothers and sisters, as the Philippians are on Paul serving them, and they're serving Paul, they also are rejoicing in the pleasure that their sacrifice is bringing to God. So having declared his joy as they're offered together, I rejoice and I rejoice with you. Paul commands the Philippians to have this kind of joy that he's having. He says, yes, I rejoice with you, but he doesn't let up. There's more joy. Second half of 18. So you too, I urge you, and if, if, if you're looking at your, your newest in your New American Standard Bible, it says I urge you, and that's in italics there, because that I urge you is not actually there. It's a command, but I think it's strange to tell someone to say rejoice, and, and, and I don't know. So you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me, but that I urge you can get rid of. You too, rejoice in the same way and rejoice with me. So I rejoice, and I rejoice with you, so you rejoice and rejoice with me. That's a lot of joy going on. Follow my example, dear Philippians. Rejoice in my offering and rejoice with me as I rejoice in your offering. See, Paul speaks often about joy 
in the book of Philippians. He prays for them with joy. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. He lives for the progress and joy in the faith. He wants the Philippians to complete his joy. In 3.1, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. Again, in verse 4.4, Paul is consumed with the Philippians' joy. That's why he commands it twice here. So here in verse 218, he says, in the same way. And Paul reveals a secret of what brings joy. In the same way. Now, this is not the only secret. Later, he's going to say, rejoice in the Lord, which we say, well, that's a really big one, right? But here he says, in the same way, rejoice. I'm not saying that Paul's not rejoicing in the Lord, but he's rejoicing in his sacrifice here and in their sacrifice. See, the path to joy will include sacrifice and service and being poured out on the sacrifice of the saints for the pleasure of the Father. That is where joy is to be found, to be consumed with the Father's smile as all of us are consumed together in serving one another. Being spent, being poured out is going to look very different for each of you, right? It's going to look different for different people. Paul was different from Timothy, who was different from Silas. He was different from Epaphroditus. Lydia was different from the Philippian jailer. And Yodia was apparently different from Syntyche. And we'll see that they had uh, some conflict going on. People are different from one another. The gifts God has given you will differ. In Romans 12, we saw that. Some are serving and some are teaching and some are exhorting and some are leading and some are showing mercy. The gifts that we have are differ. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. The Apostle Peter says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's grace is multicolored. It's manifold. So whatever you've got, whatever yours looks like, use it. If it's speaking, whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, Paul gets, I mean, Peter gets excited there too, right? In 1 Peter 4, 10, 10 through 11, he bursts into joy and worship. Use the gifts that God has given you. You're all different. You, you all have a different slice of this gift pie. I like gift pies. The opportunities that God has given you are going to differ. Some of you have more flexibility in your schedules. For some of you, it's going to be limited to weekends and nights. Many of you work long, exhausting hours so that a few of us can be freed up. You work so that I can work. One of the things that I love about Cornerstone Bible Church is that almost all of you are, are poured out in care groups. You meet one another's needs. You pray for one another. You bear one another's burdens. You exhaust yourselves for one another. The resources you have may differ. Some of you have, have the time and bandwidth in the stage of life to serve in children's ministry or to serve in roots or to serve in publishing or to serve in snacks. But, but the purpose of all of this is, is, is everyone's sacrificial service, the sacrifice and service of our faith overflowing in devotion and the welfare of one another. Some of you have money to give. Some of you can bring a meal. Some of you have a home to invite people into. Some of you have time to meet with a brother or sister for prayer and accountability. 
All of us have time to pray. All of us have time to send an encouraging text, to send a note. But the goal is the same. It's to be poured out on the sacrificial service of your brothers and sisters so that God smells and says, Mmm, that's good, right? And that's what we want is about God's pleasure as we exhaust ourselves for the benefit of one another. And that's where the joy is. The joy of being spent. And that's why after he talks about being, 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 being poured out and sizzling away, he can say, I'm happy, and I'm happy with you. You be happy, and you be happy with me. Because this is where life is. Rejoice in being spent. Rejoice that God is pleased by what Christ is accomplishing through you, through one another, through us. Rejoice that I'm being poured out for you. And I rejoice that you are being poured out for me. That we're being poured out for one another. This, this, is, this is beautiful, right? If you don't know Jesus Christ, this is what it means to be saved. How contrary to this consuming world, right? Where it's all about me, me, me. This is so different. This is, this is what the gospel accomplishes in those he saves. This is good news. I read this uh, past week how Calvin Johnson, the Detroit Lions' great wide receiver, he used to be, he's still great, but anyway, had no interest in being an assistant coach. He had, he had no interest. He says, coaching just takes up too much time. I got to the building pretty early when I was playing. And coaches were already there, and they leave after the players. Many people exhaust themselves so that the 53 players on the NFL roster can even win one game, right? Much less a Super Bowl. I, I did some uh, math and some searching that the uh, Seahawks, I don't know why I keep bringing them up, have 25 coaches, which is crazy, right? 25 coaches, four doctors, and 183 people in management. So counting the 53 players. That's 212 full-time employees. Now, I imagine when that winning field goal is kicked, when that game-clinching touchdown pass is caught, let's just pretend it was, most of those 212 employed by the Seahawks feel like they just won as well, right? I mean, who knows? There might be one who just really hates it. But probably most of the people are there like, the doctors are like, we won! And the coaches are like, we won! And the person who does all that management, the 183, I think they probably feel like they won too, right? I think. I, I had talked to, to John about this. He said it's about the team behind the team. Their efforts went into that victory. Their players' joy will be their joy. Now, don't, now no doubt you could add to that many other names of, of, of wives and children and, 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 and parents of moms and dads, that when that confetti falls, right, and, and as, 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 as their husband or their son holds up that trophy, they're rejoicing, too, in their success, right? Their success is, theirs, is, is their own success. They're, I don't know if they're as happy as the ones in the field, but maybe they are. When the time comes for your last breath, when there is nothing left to pour out, when the oil and wine of your offering is about to hit the flames, well, you have been spent for the sacrifice and service of the saints. And I'm looking out, and I know that many of you, the answer is yes. Some of you I don't know as well. 
Will you be rejoicing over the part you played in your brothers and sisters becoming a sweet-smelling sacrifice? Will your brothers and sisters rejoice over the part they played with you in your becoming that sweet-smelling sacrifice? See, joy is being spent for God's pleasure at the sweet smell of the sacrifice and service of the saints. That is worth being spent for. What are you being spent for? Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your word, and I trust by your grace, Lord, um, that we are unlocking why Paul talks about this, why he just doesn't go on to the verse 19, why he spends his time here saying it's okay to be poured out on their service, why he rejoices in it. And Father, I pray, Lord, that those of us who are being poured out, that this would be so encouraging, that they would rejoice in their sacrificial service, Lord, that they would have that, that, that same joy of being poured out along the offerings of others. And Lord, I pray, Father, for, for, for that, for everyone here. I think about, about those who serve in many ministries, Lord. I think about those who are serving in children's ministry even now, Lord. I think about our care group leaders, Lord, as they are being poured out upon the sacrifice and service of the saints, Lord, may their hearts rejoice at the fruit that's being accomplished in others' lives. But I pray, Father, this just wouldn't be about leadership, Lord. It would be about all of us, Lord. It would be about us no matter what gifts you have given us, Lord, that we would be spent fully, Lord, that we wouldn't be sitting on the sidelines, Lord, that we wouldn't just be taking up space in the stands. Lord, but that whatever gifts you've given us, and we know that that's what your spirit has accomplished in us when you save us, Lord. You've given us gifts, Lord. You redeem what was once fallen. You give us spiritual gifts, Lord. I pray, Father, that we'd all be using them. I pray, Father, that we'd be taking stock of our days and our times and why we are exhausted and why we are tired, Lord. And if it's not for what is lasting, if it's not for your smile, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be wise in making changes, Lord. Lord, but for others of us, I pray, Father, that you would encourage, Lord, as, as, as they are pouring themselves out on the sacrifice and service of the saints, I pray that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would feel fresh joy this morning at your smile, Lord. Father, this we know, Lord, and I pray that you protect anyone from thinking this has to look any one way. Paul doesn't get into the details here of what their sacrificial service looks like, what the what, 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 what their faith produced, Lord. I just pray, God, that our faith would be productive, that our faith would be producing works of obedience and works of, of love and works of sacrifice and works of devotion and works in one another's lives, Lord, so that you would be glorified and so that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.